Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. James Kinross is a consultant surgeon at Imperial College and one of the world's leading experts on the science of the microbiome. In a live stream from hospital, where he had literally just finished removing bowel cancer, he took Hannah McInnes on a tour of the amazing inner universe that is the gut microbiome and told us what it means for our overall health and well-being. That's the subject of his new book, Dark Matter. Enjoy. Can you explain to us, just to start off, in simple terms, while it is far from simple, what is the microbiome? Well, I think it is simple, actually, and I think the purpose of this story is to try and make it accessible. But the microbiome, at its most basic function, is a collection of microbes. So not just one type of microbe, like a bacteria, but also viruses, yeast, parasites that live together in a connected network. And a microbiome also describes all of the things that those microscopic life forms need to exist. And typically, a microbiome has an important what we call symbiotic function, which means that a microbiome has an evolutionary relationship with the organism that it lives on or within. And that means that it has important functions in determining how that organism lives and how they maintain their health and how they grow. So we have microbiomes all around us. There is a planetary microbiome. There are microbiomes in just about every single animal that walks or crawls or swims in this glorious planet that we live in. But we also have them within us. So we have microbiomes within our gut. That's the largest microbiome. Uh, But we have microbiomes on our skin. We have them in our lungs. We have them in, in, in in our sex organs, obviously. And we really need them to be healthy. And that's really the story that this book is about. And it's called the new science of the microbiome. So what do you mean by that? It's just, I think, really important to start these with these very basic questions here, because that's how we can understand why you wrote it and why it was important to write it now. So it's a new science because for about the last 20 years, we've had to start reappraising our relationship with with microscopic life forms and what they mean for our health. And it's a new science because it was only around kind of the early 2000s that we began to get the tools that we needed to really understand who is there and what they're doing. So that was through the advent of sequencing technologies that we could apply to complex networks of bugs and also the other technologies that we needed to understand what they're doing. And it was a bit like 20 years ago, we discovered a brand new organ that we didn't know existed, right? And and the I've mentioned the gut microbiome, I'm a gut surgeon, right? So it's one that I'm obviously biased and most interested in, but, but the gut microbiome is, is really enormous. And in terms of its kind of metabolic functions, it's probably only surpassed by the liver in terms of its total capacity. So it, it was like a huge rediscovery. Having said that, you know, the ancients have always known that there were microbes with it. Well, that's not true. They've always known that there were other microscopic life forms that were important for our health. But perhaps we can get into that in our our conversation. So you wrote this in a room, I think, in the hospital during pandemic. How much was did that influence your writing of it and the way in which our relationship with the microbiome sort of changed in that time? Sure. So, I mean, I I began writing this before the pandemic and the COVID pandemic completely reshaped Mm. what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. But I want to pick you up on kind of one really important point that you've raised, which is that we became fixated on this global catastrophe for very obvious reasons. You know, COVID was, was just horrific. It was a disaster. But the point I'm trying to make is that actually, globally, we are existing, we are coexisting with a pandemic of non-communicable disease, which kills far many more people and disables, you know, a far greater number. And that is a pandemic of obesity. It is a pandemic of cardiovascular disease. It is a pandemic of immune-mediated conditions that affect our risk of allergy or asthma or immune-mediated conditions of the gut, like inflammatory bowel disease. And at the centre of that all is the microbiome, right? So my hypothesis is that unless you understand that, you can't prevent that pandemic. But of course, you're trying then to explain that in the middle of a global catastrophe caused by a pathogen, right? So there are good and there are, actually there aren't good and bad bugs, but there are pathogens that cause us harm. It's very hard to have a narrative that says, actually, hang on, not all bugs are bad, right? Actually, microbes are not the enemy here. Comparatively, a very small number of them really causes harm or are transferable between humans. 
It's just that our understanding of our relationship with microbes is heavily biased towards those pathogens. And that's because until the Industrial Revolution and the revolution in antisepsis and sepsis that followed it, you were more likely to die of a pathogen. So the thing that was most likely going to kill you in the 1900s and the early 20th century unequivocally was a pathogen. You were likely to die of a pneumonia or you know, cholera or a gut infection, for example, or tuberculosis. Nowadays, you're not. You're much more likely to die, even in uh, a global pandemic of a pathogen, of a chronic disease. I found that absolutely fascinating. And I think um, listeners and viewers will just want to understand better how to get this balance right, because you you write the pandemic reignited, as you've just said, a war on bugs, a war that started with germ theory 150 years ago and mutated into toxic misophobia, which is an irrational fear of germs and contamination. But this is a message that you're going to struggle, I think, to get out because we have this message now so firmly ingrained that we must you know, put hand sanitizer on that we must keep ourselves completely free from bacteria. So how, where's this balance that we get right? Is that completely wrong? Should we not be using those things? Yeah. So what I really want is if you're cooking a meal or you're going to the loo or you're, you know, (laughs) going to do an operation, wash your hands. You know, these things are important and they've saved lots of lives because they stop us transferring pathogens to, you know, from one human to another. And I'm not suggesting that we should roll in the dirt and that um, actually that's the better way of living, you know, not being hygienic. What I'm saying is that after the Industrial Revolution and particularly after the Second World War, we started to live in what I refer to or what I think of as like an anti-biocene. So we think of, you know, it's like an epoch where actually our industrial process has been to try and kill all known bugs dead. And what that has led to is the willful misuse of antibiotics at uh, such an overwhelming scale that it has completely shifted our relationship with microbes at a planetary scale, let alone within a human scale. Now, I think there are other very important evolutionary forces that influence our relationship with our microbes. And I think what I'm trying to say in this book is that actually some of those are beyond our control and some of them are within our control. So for example, global conflict has really reshaped our relationship with microbes because it displaces people and opens up trade networks and it causes antimicrobial resistance and it damages our environment. Our our use of medicines, so our complete and total reliance on pharma industry to maintain paradoxically, ironically, our chronic diseases that I would argue are caused by our, our relationship with microbes breaking down are also affecting our microbes. But the biggest one undoubtedly is climate change. And what I'm saying in this book is because our microbiome physically and philosophically connects us to our planet's ecosystem and to the planetary microbiome, when that is being destroyed, ours is too. And effectively, what we're experiencing is an internal climate crisis. And, And that's got nothing to do with how you wash your hands or when you wash your hands. It's about how we as a society conceptualize our relationship with microbes and what we really want to do to protect them. Can we go to, I was, I was going to come later to antibiotics, but it's a really yeah. obviously a hugely interesting part of this. You, you know, you've just talked about the great risk that they cause to our microbiome. And yet again, it, I suppose it comes back to this question of balance that I'm keen to understand how to get that right, because you're not advocating to stop using antibiotics. So, you know, because we need yeah. antibiotics. So what is your solution? How do we care for, look after our microbiome and at the same time, you know, had the right amount of antibiotics when they're necessary? It's a really good question. I mean, I've just done an operation. I mean, literally, I gave antibiotics, right? My patient would have been at a significant higher risk of wound infection and having a really bad outcome if I didn't. I prescribe antibiotics. I think what I would say in in answer to that question is that, first of all, you have to think about who gets the antibiotics. And in North America, 80% of antibiotic use is not for humans, it's for animals, right? And that's because antibiotics were used as, anti, as, a, as, a, as a growth product, right? Uh, and then they, they are used to maintain the health of livestock, which fuels our addiction to meat, basically, which is wholly unsustainable and, and perpetuates the problem. So the first thing is who's getting them? It's not always humans. The second is who's making them? Where are they making them? How, how safely are they making them? And what we know is that globally, antibiotic manufacturers don't do that very well. And antibiotics leach into our soil, they leach into our water supplies, and they're kind of everywhere because of it. The third uh, argument is that we unquestionably overprescribe antibiotics. So that that's because quite often 
we don't have any other better solutions. Sometimes it's because of poor education. Sometimes it's because we don't have precision tools that allow us to use the right antibiotic in the right in the right person. And the British government knows this, and they've got a national strategy trying to reduce unnecessary antibiotic prophylaxis. Sorry, antibiotic use. The final thing is when you get antibiotics. So because the microbiome is dynamic, it doesn't stay the same with us. We're not born with a microbiome and then it stays with us until we die. We're born with very few microbes and they grow within us as we grow. And they have very, very important functions in determining how we grow and the health of many of our organs, the brain being one of the most fundamental. And when you destroy the microbiome through inappropriate antibiotic prescription or unnecessary antimicrobial reliance or environmental contamination from antibiotics at those critical moments in your development. That's when the impact can be really dramatic. And, and, and you know, it's, it's troubling to me that, that we don't think about that more often. Mm. You mentioned suit, you mentioned antibiotics, you also mentioned climate change. And generally, yeah. you talk a lot in the book about 21st century living. One of the things you say is it's causing our airways to close, our skin to flake, our joints to swell, our guts to bleed. And that is so much down to sort of toxins in the environment, climate, man-made climate change. And so you might forgive people for thinking, like with much to do with climate change, a feeling of helplessness basically starts to come over. You think, can, how can I change this? But, you know, your book does have lots of sort of positive advice. Yeah. So it's it, this this is a man-made thing. These are huge things happening, climate change. But you're saying, you, you know, you are hoping to empower your sure. reader, aren't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So this book is about reframing how we think about all of those environmental drivers that you've just described. So environmental toxins that we meet cause disease. And it's about actually what this book is. It's a call to arms, really. It's a call to, to prioritise our microbiome and actually to protect it. And to protect it, particularly at key moments in our development, because if you don't, I would argue that people become you know, disadvantaged in quite significant and fundamental ways later in their life. And the most important thing about the microbiome is Can I just quickly know? ask you those key yeah. moments? Sure. So during gestation, so the maternal microbiome, dads, don't worry, your microbiome is really important too. But, you know, mums, the mum, the maternal microbiome, I believe, my personal opinion is, is that it is very, very important in the development of that unborn child. The second is in early life. So from the ages of three to five. So in the minute of born, the minute you're born to about the age of three to five, your microbiome evolves and forms an adult construct at around that time frame. And then probably the next stage is around puberty. That's super important. After that's pretty stable, uh, actually, as you go into adult life until you start to age. So when you hit your around the 70 mark, it's kind of debated as to exactly when it starts to change. It changes again. And so broadly, people at extremes of life, the very young and the very old, they are the most vulnerable. They're most vulnerable for pathogens. They're the most vulnerable for lots of things that cause harm, right? But but equally, they're, they're at the most risk of having detrimental changes to their to their microbiome. Sorry, I interrupted you. You no. the bigger yeah, picture. So, <laughs> so, what, so what I was trying to say is that this book, I hope, is a positive thing. It's about saying, look, actually, you really can change your microbiome and you can do it really positively. And this book is full of examples, actually, of where that's happened. Uh, and it's full of examples, both about individual things you can do, but also things that you can do at a country or national level, right? So uh, a country na national level example would be to ban the use of antibiotics as antibiotic growth promoting factors, which we've done in Europe, and it's been really successful. And they've done it in Denmark, and lo and behold, it makes a huge difference to the, the, the distribution of antimicrobial resistance genes. You can do lots of things to your diet and the way that you eat and the way that you fuel your microbiome. And we, I'm sure we'll talk about that. And I'm sure you'll have questions about it, but effectively de-westernizing your diet makes really big changes to it. You can ensure you're vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, you're much, much less likely to take antibiotics and you're having a precision strike on bad actors and it protects the rest of the microbiome because of it. And ultimately, of course, if you're really sick and your microbiome is perhaps part of the reason why you're sick, you can have a fecal transplant now, which, uh, you know, is something that, of course, we've been doing for thousands of years and has slowly been rediscovered and reimagined into a modern therapy.
Let's talk about that then. Um, people, you know, it's not the it's not the loveliest chapter. Um, I yes. won't I won't lie. But why, if they are so miraculous? I mean, you 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 quote someone saying this was a miracle for her husband. Yeah. And you come back to them at times in the book as just always being this. Essentially, they seem like this miracle treatment. Yeah. Perhaps explain to people what it is. But why is it not being used more often? If it really does, if it really does have yeah. this extraordinary power to heal. So in, in in this particular example that you're referring to, there was a, a patient of ours at Imperial called Roy, and we talk about him, and he had a superbug infection in his gut called Clostridium difficile, and he had a fecal transplant, and it cured him of his infection, and he got better. And fecal transplant for Clostridium difficile infection in the United Kingdom is now is now approved by NICE, so the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and it's a it's a well established therapy. What it's not is an established therapy for other more experimental conditions like allergies or uh, eczema or, or conditions of the gut like ulcerative colitis. So it, for that, for those conditions, it's more experimental. We're still working out how it works, why it works, how you give it more precisely. But fecal transplantation is also a tool that's been used for a very long period of time as a way to understand what the microbiome is how it works and where it's working, because you can use it in an experimental setting. And there was a group in Washington that did some experiments in the early 2000s that kind of reignited our interest in the microbiome through fecal transplantation, where they were able to take twins. One twin was lean and the other was uh, obese. And they were able to perform fecal transplantation where they took the feces from the obese twin and put them into a lean mouse. And that mouse became obese. So they were then able to reverse that effect by putting in the lean twins feces into the same animal. And we've got countless other examples of this. So fecal transplantation is a blunt instrument. It's a blunt tool for making wholesale changes in the ecology of the gut because we don't have the precision or the real understanding of the complexity of the microbiome to say, okay, we're just going to give you one strain or one bug or one function of those microbes to switch okay. on particular genes that we need. Okay, so... If we leave that there for the moment, another um, you you talked about diet, and no doubt many people will will be sort yeah. of very interested in diet and sleep and lifestyle changes. But first, can I just flag up something you say, which sure. is don't fall for people peddling quick answers and easy cures. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I want to say that before we move to what do feel like quite quick answers in terms of diets. But yes. when you say that, wh what is it that people should feel sceptical about? Is that, you know, probiotics? Is that supplements? Yeah. What, what is it that people should raise an eyebrow when they see being peddled? And you specifically mentioned kind of influences in that. Yeah. Well, look, I, so many of the patients that turn up in my clinic with, you know, really chronic problems who perhaps haven't got the answers that they need from traditional modern medicine, are quite vulnerable people, they're desperate, and they will try anything because these chronic conditions that we're talking about have made their lives really, really uncomfortable and difficult, and they've suffered. And the thing with the microbiome is that I'm like, I'm a, obviously a microbiome evangelist, I believe it's very, very important. But I also acknowledge that we don't know a lot about it. Like yeah. we, so that we know, we know very little, and there's much more that we don't know than we do know. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that when it fits this missing link between you know, what medicine does well and what it doesn't do badly, it means it's open to abuse. It means that it can fill the, it can fill a void and it can be whatever it wants to be to whoever's trying to leverage it for whatever sometimes nefarious use cases they have. So there's lots of people that are very excited online and are trying to push microbiome therapies. And this goes everything from sort of backdoor fecal transplantation. And I just can't say strongly enough that you should not do that to, you know, pushing or promoting specific extreme diets or dietary strategies or, or, or supplements that, you know, are supposed to allegedly work through the microbiome. So I think if you're listening to these sorts of things online and there's not a consistent message from multiple different users who are all saying the same thing with a really strong evidence base that they can point to and a, and a plausible mechanism through which it works, you should be quite suspicious. And you should think quite carefully about, you know, before you try those supplements, but probiotics are a real thing. They really do work. Like they, I prescribe them for my patients. We should use them. The problem that we lack in things like probiotic therapies or many therapies for the microbiome is that word precision. It's how do I know precisely which strain to give which patient at the right time for the right reason to ensure that it's going to really have a health benefit for their particular use case. And at the moment, we just don't have that. So that's about consultation. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of patients at the moment that come to see me who I, I, who I take off probiotics. You know, they're sat there bloated it's in a lot of discomfort with diarrhea and they can't understand why and they're chugging their probiotics. They're saying it should be making it better. And actually quite a lot of the time it's about taking... <laughs> stopping everything, letting the gut kind of reacclimatize, and then working through things in a more uh, systematic way. So obviously one of the things that people want to know how to do, probiotics aside, in terms of what you put in and what you ingest is obviously with their diet. At the very sort of beginning of the book, you dismiss the paleo diet, which people often yeah. think is right. You say it's laughable. Why? Yeah, because this idea that if you eat a paleo diet and you're living in West London like I do and your gut is going to go back to a paleolithic gut microbiome is just ridiculous. It, it absolutely isn't because your gut is living in an urban centre and your gut is having to deal with urban pollutants and your gut microbiome is influenced by all of these things all of the time, right? And, and the second reason is that, of course, a paleolithic man or woman coming to live today, their gut microbiome would not have evolved to equip itself with modern life and they would succumb very quickly to pathogens and die. But but what I am saying is that nutrition and diet is very, very important. And what the microbiome tells us is that the microbiome is highly individualized. So your microbiome and my microbiome is completely different. And because the microbiome plays such a key role in determining the health benefit or disease risk of your diet or your nutritional strategy, it is therefore very difficult to make generalized assumptions about who should eat what if you're trying to treat a disease. You can do it if you're trying to make general assumptions about a population and how we should prevent disease by more generically eating well, right? So a good example of that would be fiber consumption. Okay, but what about, so the miracle at the moment where you can't sort of go anywhere without people evangelizing about fermented foods. Are they the miracle cure for everyone that they're said to be? I love fermented foods and I strongly recommend you eat them and they're really good for your gut and they do improve biodiversity and they and they help. And uh, I regularly, again, put my patients on them and I say that you really need to have this as part of a structured dietary and nutritional approach to optimizing your health. But they are not a panacea, right? They don't miraculously make everything better for the reasons that we talked about at the top of this conversation. Unless we really take the protection of our microbiome seriously and we say, look, actually, we've just got to not destroy it on the f- in the first place and then sustainably grow it with regular you know, consumption of fermented foods, moving away from a westernized global diet and put in the food regulatory framework and food policy framework to enable those things and to sustainably change the human behavior to adopt those things. It won't it won't work. Presumably what will work and what is you would advocate is what not to eat. Yeah. And um, there's just nothing good is there about eating any processed foods when it comes to your microbiome. No, not really. No. And, but, but, and look, I think we have to be quite careful because we started this conversation by saying we're living longer, but we're not living happier. Right. So that's the basic premise of what I'm saying. And I'm, I'm saying the microbiome is kind of important to it. Part of the reason we're living longer is not just because we've become really adept at killing pathogens. It's because we've been able to supply a rapidly growing population with a bountiful supply of cheap food, right? Mm. Which is why a cost of living crisis is just so catastrophic because, you know, there's lots of families out there that cannot afford to eat, you know, at the moment and are relying Mm. on food banks. And so I don't want to stigmatize cheap foods because actually lots of people live on them. But as a society and as a platform, yeah, it's really problematic. Foods that are highly saturated in animal fats, foods that are, you know, reliant on particularly cheap and processed meats, refined sugars, foods that are very low in plant-based fibers, uh, diets that are high in sugary drinks, high in alcohol, we know are terrible for you. And you don't need to be a microbiome scientist to know that. The microbiome simply explains part of the reason why they're so bad for you and why you really, really, really should avoid them. So another thing, you know, as, as we said, it's not about quick and easy, simple cures, but another thing that you talk about that is very important that people will be very interested because they always are to know about. And there's been, you know, in recent years, um, a lot of people kind of examining sleep. You talk about sleep, sleep tight and don't let the bed bugs bite you, right? 
So how much of an impact does the sleep you get when you sleep and how much of it have on your microbiome? So what I find completely bonkers about microbiome science is that every week another paper comes out that just makes us rethink our relationship with them. And sleep is a really good example because there are particular types of microbes known as oscillators that that change their activity based on your on your sleep cycle. And we know that those are very important part of the way that a really good night's sleep or getting good, I think the kind of rather unpleasant phrase of sleep hygiene, you know, improves your health. Now, a lot of the studies on the microbiome were done in things like shift workers. And actually, you can identify a shift worker without knowing anything about them based on analysis of their microbiome. Now, part of that, of course, is that shift workers might, might, I'm a shift worker, okay, uh, might have less good diets. They might, you know, perhaps be in a lower socioeconomic bracket. They might do jobs that are perhaps, you know, not um, as conducive to healthy living. But even when you account for those things, you can still work out someone's sleep pattern based on their on their microbiome and our microbiome fluctuates in a rhythm not just on our sleep but with some of the other kind of major rhythms of our of our lives as we as as we live so that might be things like a menstrual cycle or you know having children or um you know going into a midlife crisis i think i talked about mine (laughs) a little bit you do and actually you've just reminded me of another truly fascinating part of the book you talk about the sort of cycles that it influences and you write about reproduction. I, I don't think that many people, and forgive me if they do, and I've missed it, but yeah. know just how important it could be to that, yeah. to reproduction. You say the modern microbiome is directly and indirectly influencing our ability to reproduce and may yet serve as a therapeutic avenue for couples struggling to conceive. I mean, is that commonly known? I don't think it's commonly known. I mean, I think, again, it's an example of medicine focusing on the pathogens and the things that cause us harm and not thinking about the communities of microbes that sustain our happiness and our wellness and our, you know, ability to reproduce. So one example is in women. We know that women who have a a predominant lactobacilli culture within the vagina have less rates of infertility and lower rates of, of having, you know, complications from their pregnancy. And actually, we are now beginning to experiment with things like vaginal transplantation as a direct cure for infertility. These are super early studies that are really, again, totally in their infancy. And I don't want to give you know, I want to be quite cautious in my optimism here. But if, if you were talking about fertility earlier, like we've got a pandemic of obesity, we've got a pandemic of global, you know, cardiovascular disease. And of course, the declining infertility rate maps onto that, you know, really precisely and really closely. And the microbiome just sits at the intersection of those things. So if you look at spermatic motility in males who are morbidly obese, it's it's a bit lower, right? And part of the reason it's lower is because the bugs in the gut are changing the way that these people are able, these men are able to make vitamin A and sperm is really dependent on vitamin A for its motility. So there are lots of indirect ways and there are direct ways. So you you were talking about, uh, you know, not falling for easy, for sort of easy ways to deal with this, but yeah. you also talked about age and yeah. what happens to our microbiome with age and how can we prevent it from you know, sort of weakening? How can yeah. we keep it strong? Does it get too late? Or there, I know there are people listening who are, and um, we've had questions from people who are in the 70s, yeah. I think 60s, 70s, 80s. So how do we keep it healthy? Yeah. Is there any point where we just can't any longer do anything for it? So the answer to that is unequivocally no, you can always do something. And in fact, there's lots of things that you can do. So just to give you like a broad understanding of what I think is happening is that as we age, we see changes in the ecology of the gut and we see quite, you know, consistent changes across populations. And we see changes in people that live for a very long time. So people that are known as centenarians, people who live over the age of 100, seem to have distinct microbiomes that have distinct functions that when you put them into animal models, lo and behold, the mice live for a longer time. Now, there are two broad things that's happening as we age. The first is that there's a process of inflammaging, which is think about that like an accelerator, right? So generally, if your foot's on the gas, you're causing inadvertent harm through the process of inflammation that furs your arteries, it causes obesity, it causes your risk of diabetes, amongst other things. But as we age, the foot comes off the accelerator a little bit and you get something called immunosenescence. And what that means is that the immune system starts to slow. It starts to become less responsive. And what we know from studying the microbiomes of people that have been moved into care homes who are elderly or who move into kind of environments with other older people is that their their microbiomes begin to homogenize. They begin to kind of become 
similar and they lose their biodiversity and they lose some of these critical functions and that that maps very closely onto how frail these people become and how their immune system responds to the aging process so actually the key i think or one of the keys to it is to ensure that you maintain the diversity of your microbiome as you age and much of that remains actually in remaining social so having physical connectivity with a diverse group of people and many of our older you know populations are isolated and lonely and and lack that and that's very problematic clearly maintaining your mobility is very very important as soon as you start to lose your mobility your your microbiome changes and so actually maintaining activity is a key function of aging healthily the third is obviously diet as we've described so having that diversity in your diet maintaining the fiber in your diet a little bit of fermented food very very good but also you know avoiding the bad stuff and then in elderly people again it's thinking about things like polypharmacy what that means is is that as we get a bit older we tend to have more health related conditions for which we have to take more medicines and these all of these medicines are sometimes unnecessary and we perhaps overmedicate our older people and we want to try and get them off as many as we can because it's really not very good for the bugs that live within us hey there i'm dr maya shankar and i'm a scientist who studies human behavior many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything that instantly divides our life into a before and an after On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You you say this is the century of the brain-gut access. Freud would be delighted. Yeah. How can our increased knowledge of that relationship between the brain and the gut help us going forward these sort of idea that there's so many you you talked about we're not growing happier but how can our increasing knowledge of the connectivity between our gut and our brain and the mind body connection how can we use that harness that to our benefit well it's it's a very early and exciting area of work and we again like we are every day something comes out and we learn a bit more about it but i think philosophically conceptually it's really really important because it allows us to do two really important things. The first is ensure that our brains develop to their maximum healthy potential. And the second is to prevent them degenerating prematurely or causing some of the conditions that we commonly associate with aging, but perhaps, you know, unfairly so. So Alzheimer's being a really good example of that. There might be a third, which is how we maintain our sense of happiness and how we uh, maintain our mental health as we go about our, our day-to-day business. And to sort of break those three things down super, super quickly and probably in a kind of oversimplified way. Number one is if you don't have a healthy biodiverse gut microbiome, your brain simply cannot grow. It needs the energy, but it also relies on the microbiome to regulate its developing immune system. And that's very important in shaping how nerves link together and how you form some of the most fundamental parts of that kind of brain as it grows. And we know that when that process is perturbed, we can find things like symptoms of anxiety in young people. And we have a mechanism where we think that might occur. And we also have quite strong evidence now that the microbiome is very, very important part. And I say this very clearly, part of the process by which we think autism is caused in young people, right? So it's not the whole reason, it's just part of the story. In terms of mood, so if you look at um, people who suffer from depression, and just bear in mind the scale of the problem with depression, we have 16% of our population in the United Kingdom that take an antidepressant regularly, like we are really not happy. Again, the microbiome doesn't necessarily cause depression, there are lots of things in our lives that, that can do that. But we know that there are some of us that are unquestionably more susceptible to it. And again, we've got, we've got now targets within the microbiome that we can look at and the really important bit about the microbiome is that you can do something to it you can engineer it you can take what we think are psychobiotics so probiotics designed to target the gut brain access uh, or we can synthetically engineer it to switch on some of its gene functions or we can give you more nutritional diet or dietary devices really targeted to help you as part of your kind of medical strategy And then the third thing, as I mentioned, was in the degenerating brain. Like you've probably heard a lot of excitement this week about Alzheimer's drugs coming into the market in the NHS. Those are super exciting. But what those drugs do is hold that condition at bay. They don't 
they don't necessarily prevent it from occurring in the first place. And the microbiome is important because it gives us a different route to understand how Alzheimer's forms or how neurodegenerative conditions form. And it gives us a target that we can actually meaningfully uh, leverage to prevent the disease in the first place. Okay, so I'm going to reluctantly stop asking my own questions that, you know, there is just so much in this book that people can, but, you know, hopefully they will buy it and go and find out for themselves. But my last question to you, and it is my last question is, you said you're an evangelist for the microbiome, you clearly are. What are you most excited about in the sort of not too distant future? Yeah, so uh, we've spent the last 20 years working out who is there. And we're going to spend the next 20 working out what they're doing. And like, by the way, we really still don't know who is there. (laughs) Like, it's still this book is called Dark Matter because not just because the microbiome dwarfs our human genome and that actually 95 to 99 percent of the genes that we have floating around within us and on us are not human. And we have no working knowledge of them. Right. So we've still got a lot to find out viruses phage i could talk for another whole hour on that i won't but we are starting to understand how some of these components work and and i'm really excited about new advances in our ability to target and engineer the microbiome to treat and really meaningfully prevent disease and i'm also really excited that the microbiome is starting to come into the public psyche it's starting to become a concept which isn't just quackery or stuff that is in a niche online, but actually will fill into mainstream policy, where actually we can say as a nation, actually we want to improve the resilience and health of our of our population uh, by by protecting our microbiomes and stopping the onslaught of you know ultra processed foods, drugs that we don't need, antibiotic misuse, and have a new framework for doing that. So yeah, I, I'm very optimistic about the future uh, and we can change the microbiome for the better. So that's a, a positive note to end on. That, uh, I'm I'm very glad that is how we yeah. like to end. Um, Kate asks, and I'm, I'm delighted that she has, could you expand on psychobiotics? Should we yeah. be taking them? And if so, what types? So the answer is, The evidence for psychobiotics is purely experimental at the moment. What that means is it's largely come from animals and rat studies, and we have no good human trials that suggest that if you take a psychobiotic, you're going to definitely have your depression treated, for example. There are particular strains and bugs that I've written about in my book, and you can read them, and there's all the studies are referenced there if you're really interested. But So I'm reluctant to say take a specific probiotic. But what I absolutely can tell you is that if you are struggling with these conditions, thinking about your health holistically and thinking about what you eat and put into your gut will have a really big impact on how the medicines that you take work to treat depression. And it is very much part of the strategy of getting back towards you know, a positive uh, mental health uh, frame of mind. We do have experimental studies of fecal transplantation in mental health disorders. And the data around them is very, very early, and it's too soon to be saying anything definitive about it. But we've seen some very exciting work, for example, on the treatment of addiction. Uh, so addiction in both opiates, but also alcohol, things that are really destructive and, and, and destroy people's lives. When you reset the microbiome, you reset the gut-brain access, you change not just how addictive those agents can become, but also other kind of consequences of, of addiction, so your, your mood and how, and how you feel. So I'm very optimistic about the microbiome as being a therapeutic target. I can't, as a clinician, say to you, okay, there are psychobiotics you can go to the market and take now. I think that's going to come in the next five to 10 years. Peter says, importantly, you said at the start, we did we did talk more about food, but we didn't probably cover this in the sense you said we should move away from the Western diet um, yeah. earlier on in our conversation. So Peter says, towards what? So a lot of the work that we've done in my lab, I've done in collaboration with the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Stellenbosch in South Africa. And what we're very interested in is studying, hey, I'm a bowel cancer surgeon, right? So we're very interested in studying people who've got the highest risk of bowel cancer. And those with the highest risk are African-American men from North America, right? And what we, and then those with the lowest risk are actually rural sub-Saharan African populations that have a very, very high fiber diet. Uh, they are very lean, they exercise a great deal, and they're very in tune with their environmental microbiomes. So in our work, what we have done is we've kind of rather cruelly locked these two groups of individuals in a house and then crossed over their diets. And then we've controlled very precisely what they eat. So the African-American group get an African diet, 
and the African group get a North American diet. And then we've watched what happens to the microbiome and the consequences of that on the health of the gut. And the answer is, is that uh, it's really dramatic and it happens very, very quickly. So within two weeks, you can Africanize an American gut. And within two weeks, you can Americanize an, an African gut. And so to answer your question, what you should be doing is moving to ideally a very high fiber plant-based diet. So that's at least 30 grams of fiber a day. If you can increase just by seven grams of fiber a day, your risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, bowel cancer, mental health problems, everything will drop. Um, and if you can get to 50 grams, like a sub-Saharan African, you're an absolute champion, but I, you'll kind of blow up like a Zeppelin, I think. <laughs> But, but but, yeah. What sorts of foods should we find? Would be finding that sort of a level of fiber in? Yeah. So so what you want is mixed fibers. Fibers is not fiber. The word fiber is kind of misleading. It's not yeah. a very helpful term. It's not a single homogenous food type, right? So fibers come in in different types. We used to think about them as highly fermentable or low fermentable uh, fiber types, but we also think about them as prebiotic fibers. So prebiotic fibers are fibers that bugs really like to eat to live off right and a lot of those come in fruits and they come in um you know they do come in uh, green vegetables and cruciferous vegetables these sorts of things uh, and fibers that are non-digestible tend to come in roots of plants and they tend to be you know hard crunchy things that are difficult to digest obviously cereals oats fibers these sorts of things are very very important as other good source of them and you know to be honest with you i don't really mind what you have as long as you're getting more of it and it will do you it will do your health no end of good but it is you know as it fits with our kind of earlier part of our conversation uh, we know a lot of those fiber benefits are mediated through the microbiome and we're beginning to understand how and specifically which fibers and which bugs so i think in the future you'll end up with a very personalized tailored strategy that says okay Hannah, you've got this problem you need these fibers it will select out these particular bugs and this will have the desired health benefit right mm. i think there are a number of startups around the world trying to get us to that point we're not quite there yet yeah it is very individualized and i think people would say that um yeah. you know a lot of people have a lot of uh, a lot of trouble digesting some of the things you've yeah. just said exactly right and my clinic is full of ibs sorry patients with irritable bowel syndrome that simply can't tolerate that and, and the reason they can't tolerate it is that their microbiome is just not able to metabolize those fibers. It, it simply doesn't have the genes that it needs to switch on to, to do that work. There are a number of nutritional and dietary strategy, strategies out there that you will read about on the internet. One example is FODMAP. So these are you know, darts where you select out particular types of fiber to try and help retrain the gut. But again, if you're really struggling, I really, really recommend you, you reach out to a dietitian, either through your family doctor or online, because it's very, very helpful to have someone sit down with you, give you an actual menu plan, really actionable information that is specific to you. And we need more dietitians, I think. Mm, really interesting. Um, so many questions. Uh, I mean, we start to talk about the pandemic and this yeah. sort of um phobia what uh, misophobia is it yeah um somebody asked you know should if there's another pandemic would you advocate that we locked that we did you know had another lockdown i mean i know this is a big yeah. question and perhaps i you know you're you you can feel free to take the sort of uh, pass no, card but no no i'm not going to take the pass card I, it's a very fair question i i think so here's what i would say to that i mean lockdown i think we're only really going to understand the true health consequences of lockdown in the years to come. I think the health consequences have been so significant, particularly for our mental health, particularly in our young, and it's going to take some time. What I absolutely know is in that first wave, and I know because I was in a hospital watching people die in very, very large numbers, that if we hadn't in that first wave, it, it, it would have been so much worse. I have absolutely no doubt about that. The second, third lockdown, that's more debatable. To come back to the microbiome, what I absolutely know is that those people who have a more diverse microbiome, both in their nose, in their upper airways, as well as in their gut, were much less likely to uh, succumb to the most severe symptoms of COVID or to die from COVID. And we know that from studies across the world, and we've got good studies actually from sub-Saharan Africa. So if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, where they didn't have good healthcare prevention strategies, or at least they weren't perhaps as organized as they were in, 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 in the developed world or in Europe, they of course had a catastrophe of disease because they just couldn't stop the spread of these conditions, but they were less likely to die if they got COVID. So what I do think is that for future pandemics, we should be promoting the biodiversity and health of our microbiome systems because that will 
It won't stop a necessary global pandemic like an influenza crisis. They're going to happen. It will just make us more resilient in the face of them. And we should be thinking when our next kind of pandemic strategy, as we start to plan it, okay, how do we promote and protect our symbionts as part of that strategy? Really interesting. One of the things that somebody asks, you talk about in the book, you talk about sort of with cooking for the microbiome. So um, Shirley says, how much does cooking of vegetables destroy the positive impacts on the gut microbiome? Well, so it's a really interesting question, Shirley. Uh, amazingly, no one really knows for sure. <laughs> you would have thought. So there have been studies done on it. And, and the way that I would argue is that it really changes its impact on the microbiome, whether it's for better or for worse is up for debate, right? So when you take starches and you cook them, you know, you turn, you, you denature them and you turn them into gels and it changes the physical properties of those fibers in the gut. And it changes also the relationship that the bugs have with those, uh, with those uh, fibers. So actually, we would argue quite strongly that how you cook your, your food is very, very important. Now, first of all, cook it yourself. So take your delivery app and just chuck it out. Like you've got to cook your food yourself. And probably what's more important is you've got to share your food. So when you're eating socially with other people, you're, you know, that's how you're sharing your good microbes, which you really need. But, um, but cooking absolutely does change the microbiome. Interestingly, like we know that in some of our patients, we put them on something called an enteral diet, which means that they have a liquid diet. It's only the essential minerals that they get on the essential elements of their food and they drink it. And that has a profound effect on the microbiome. And much of the benefit that comes from those nutritional strategies is mediated by bugs that change within the gut. So these strategies don't just switch on genes within the gut that have a human benefit. They change the whole ecology of the gut in quite sophisticated ways that Actually, the truth is we're still working out. So another question that's really interesting uh, is from Emily. Hi, James. In my experience, GPs and specialists often prefer prescription drugs like uh, NSAIDs and other painkillers yeah. over diet and lifestyle changes. You, you know, one part that I sort of wrote uh, flagged up in your book that sort of I find heartbreaking is you say hospitals don't feed the microbiome. So it's incredibly refreshing talking to you in your overalls and hearing yeah. you talk like this. But you know, Emily is right. There's still vast swathes yeah. of the medical profession who aren't really feel like they're not in the know. I think that's a fair question. And I would agree with you. And I think in fairness to lots of my colleagues, part of it is because this is not part of their education. This is not something that they're taught at medical school or you're taught in as part of your clinical career. The second reason is, is because beyond making general recommendations, we don't have really good clinical tools that allow us to selectively target particular nutritional strategies and approaches for particular clinical conditions, right? So we just don't have that. Um, like probiotics is a brilliant example. Like which probiotic should I give? Most doctors just don't know and it's kind of not their fault. But having said that, I spend a lot of my clinics doing just that, like doing things which are really not medical. And, it, and it's much easier to prescribe a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory than to have a 45-minute consultation about sustainably changing someone's health behavior towards something that's, that's better. So I also have a lot of sympathy for family doctors and GPs who just simply are not equipped to, to give the time that they need. I do, however, think that's changing. So if you look at the NHS 10-year forward plan that we had and then the five-year plan, actually it really focused on prevention. It said, we need to be helping people eat healthier and to have the educational tools that they need to access the food that they need. We've also got to make it more affordable, right? It's just not affordable. If you, you know, most, the average family will really struggle to eat organic food and to eat, you know, food that's really, really good for them because it's just much, much cheaper to go to the local, you know, fast food joint. And so as a society, we've also got a bit of a problem to fix there, I think, Emily. I mean, that is somewhat facing and um, it it's, it's yeah. really is probably the biggest problem, isn't it? The cost faces yeah. in supporting my son to recover from post-COVID gastric issues. I realise there's a significant cost, um, you know, to, to improve their microbiome. I think this is absolutely true. And yeah. as a health professional, Faye says, I feel concerned towards those that cannot afford these types of changes. So how far off is the NHS on supporting these types of interventions? You know, in a similar question, Michelle says, will the NHS ever be able to affordably test your microbiome so you can work with a nutritionist to have more precise, a more precise diet? Um, Ooh, and and yeah. she flags up, you can do this privately. I mean, all of this stuff is is only affordable for a small minority yeah. of people. Yeah, absolutely right. And yet I, it's so important. Yeah, exactly right. So, so the answer is, well, testing microbiome is really contentious, right? So 
there are lots of companies out there offering point of care testing for the microbiome and most of them aren't really very good and you shouldn't really be doing it it's, i think it's a waste of money i don't test mine through those commercial tests but we are starting to work towards creating standards for clinical microbiome testing and i'm involved in some of those initiatives and we've got initiatives across europe that will come in but it has to be equitable affordable and scalable and it's really got to be quality assured and that's it's actually a harder thing to do than you might think. It, it is going to happen. I'm absolutely sure of that. It'll just take a little bit more time. I think there are a lot of people out there spending a lot of money on probiotics, uh, typically in like really costly subscription programs, which are not evidence-based and not particularly helpful. Uh, and actually, there are other simpler things that you can do to protect your gut, which are more affordable, right? And we talked about fermented foods, but you know, I, to be honest, most of my patients, I, I say take kefir. Kefir is super cheap, but you can buy it in, a, in, a, in, a, in an any supermarket. And and there are lots of problems with kefir and it only, you know, it's not going to work in everybody. It's not a miracle cure, but it's, it's a more sustainable and affordable choice. Yeah, you're right. We need better education programs. We have to make this a more accessible, uh, a more accessible initiative. And that's the purpose of writing this book, frankly, is to push it up into the public, yeah. public, you know, um, domain and to say, look, these things are important. And unless we can influence policymakers to prioritise it, it's very difficult to change it. And kefir is fine um, as dairy. Yeah, well, actually, you can get you can make it in water, actually. And there are different type of granules you can make. And 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 dairy is not so bad if you do if you're lactose intolerant, it can ferments out quite a lot of the it takes out quite a lot of the lactose. So it's OK. I, I, I you're not going to harm yourself if you take it. it. It's a safe thing to take. If you're taking these things, there's a couple of rules. Number one, you've got to take them sustainably. So you've got to take them for at least four to eight weeks because you need those bugs that are growing to engraft and to live within the gut. So if you just take them every so often, there's no point. It doesn't work. The right. second thing is, is that, you know, if you're feeling unwell with it or you're feeling bloated, don't persevere. It's not working. Stop it. All of those bugs that have blown up within you will die and you'll feel better. All right. And and then the third is, of course, it has to be part of a bigger strategy. Like you have to be asking yourself, well, okay, what other things can I be doing to promote and improve my health? Mm. And how do I do that as part of a bigger kind of program or strategy? And sometimes you do need help from a, a doctor or, or dietitian or allied healthcare specialist to do that. Well, we've come to the end of the hour. Um, Charles says book now on must read list. And I'm sure many others um, will feel the same. James, thank you so much for um, joining us for the last hour. And thank you all very much for signing in. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This episode starred James Kinross and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Luke Naylor Perrett and the show is made by me, Vas Christodoulou and Esme Bright with help from Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed this episode, consider taking out a subscription to HowTo Plus. Our members get access to all of our live streams for free and generous discounts to our live events too. And it's half price if you use the code POD50. That's P-O-D-5-0. We quite literally would not be able to make this show or have come through the pandemic without our members. So if you already have a membership, thank you. Your support really does make all the difference. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>